We're in the book of 1 John. We're traveling through it, getting wisdom from the apostle that probably lived the longest of the 12 that Jesus chose. So we're in chapter, end of chapter two, we'll pick up the end of it. Chapter, the division of chapters is not very good here. Um, I'll read some verses, we'll talk. I'll read some more verses and we'll talk. Kind of like what I do every Sunday. No surprise there. First John 2, 28. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. John here is going to make us sure of something. In this section, it'll conclude in verse 3, he's going to say, I want you guys have, to have hope. You know how important hope is? I have an Italian proverb written out at home, and it says this, the last thing lost is hope. Think about that. You can lose a lot of things in life. Your job, you can lose a loved one, you can lose a football game, you can lose a lot of things in life. But if you lose hope, guess what happens to the human soul? It withers and dies. It's been proven a lot of ways. A number of years ago, a doctor called Dr. Kurt Rickner of John Hopkins University, he did a study on rats when it comes to hope. It's interesting to me that when scientists want to study humans, what do they use? Why is that? What do scientists think of us? Those rats. So he would take these rats and he would bring them over a big barrel of water. And once the rats saw the water, they'd start to struggle because they didn't want to be dropped in the water. And they would drop the rat in the water. It would swim out, climb out and take off. No problem. But he, does, he devised this contraption that would hold a rat completely immobile. It couldn't move a muscle. And then it would take the rat and bring it over that same barrel of water, and they would watch the heart rate freak out as it's trying to move, but it can't move. It can't do anything. And eventually, the rat just gives up, and the heart rate goes back down. The moment that happened, they would open it up, drop that rat into the water, and without a single muscle moving, it would sink to the bottom and drown. Why? It lost hope. I can't beat this thing. It lost hope because hope is the last thing lost. So John here is dealing with a group of people that are going to need hope. And he's going to try to build into them, you've got to have hope. That's how this section ends. Now you may think, well, isn't hope just something you're born with? Like people have a hopeful kind of disposition, personality, and some people don't. Well, there's some truth to that, but hope is also a muscle that you can exercise. It's a thing in our brain that is actually built on information. And so John here, Pastor John is saying, let me help you get some information that will build into you hope. And number one is this, confidence. 
You got to have confidence. And he says, verse 29, 28, excuse me, little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. The opposite of confidence, according to John, would be shrinking shame. You ever done something that made you shrink in shame? I'll give you an example from my own life. I have a lot of them. So about 10 years ago, I was just right down here. There was a company called Performance Fabrication that, uh, that rented out a space over here. It was run by Steve Fitchie. So I decided to drop in there and see how he was doing. And I was writing, it was this January day. You know the January days that we get where it's crystal clear blue skies, but freezing temperatures? And everything that's in the sun is like thawed out, but everything that's in the shade is icy? It was one of those days. So I'm on my motorcycle. It was one of those fast motorcycles. They call them murder cycles. So I was riding a murder cycle, and I went down there. In performance fabrication, what they did was they made muscle cars, Lots of horsepowers. So you'd pull into their parking lot and there's just tire marks everywhere where people have been doing burnouts, testing out the horsepower. So I'm there on my motorcycle and I'm talking to Steve Fitchie and then I'm about ready to go, but I have a pledge that as part of my job as a believer, I'm supposed to obey scripture. And scripture says this, that I'm to become all things to all men. To the Jew, become like a Jew. To the Greek, like a Greek. To those under the law, as under the law. To those outside of law, as outside of law. I became all things to all men, that by all means I might save some. So what am I supposed to do when I'm in this parking lot with burnouts everywhere and Steve Fitchy? I have to burn out. I know I'm deluded, but that's okay. So I pull in my front brake, and I'm about ready to just let it go. And Steve's like, dude, it's cold, man. There's ice all over. And I look down at my front tire, and there's about six inches of bare pavement, and there's a shadow, and it's frost. But I thought, yeah, no problem. I can do this. So I hit that throttle, dropped that clutch, and I am burning rubber. And my front tire rolled forward six inches, hit that ice, and down went heavily. <laughs> Boom, right? I mean, I don't think I fulfilled becoming all things to all people. I think it was rather God uses the foolish to confound the wise. That's what I actually fulfilled, right? So in that moment, guess what I felt? Shame. Just shame. Like, oh, are you kidding? I cannot believe that. Because here's what shame is. Let me give you a definition. Shame is painful emotions caused by guilt, shortcoming, or impropriety. It's the condition of humiliating disgrace or regretful decisions. Shame. And once you've done something shameful, there's like planted in your heart this seed that grows up and starts to produce a crop. The first is fear. Guess what the first thing I did as I'm standing there looking at my bike on the ground? Guess what I did? I looked around. Who saw that? Right? Get the bike up. Steve, please don't tell anyone, right? Fear, because you don't want anybody to know. 
Number two, isolation. I'm like, I've got to get my bike home and put it away before my wife sees this. She will ground me. I need to, right? And then number three is lying. Someone sees my bike. Dude, what happened to your bike? It's all scratched up. No, that's the way you buy them now. It's called the distress look. It's really in, right? That's what shame does. Shame is a giant bummer. So what John is trying to say is this. If you're going to have hope, the foundation, the platform is a confidence. You need to have a confidence. That's where it all begins. And while I can't help you have confidence when you ride a motorcycle, because you probably won't, I think I can help you have a confidence that can never be taken from you as a believer in Jesus Christ. I think it can help you do that. Because too many believers, they base their relationship with God on how they are doing, literally. It goes back to Genesis, and I've talked about this before, a covenant of works. Most of our relationships are based on what you're doing or what you have not done. And so we bring that into our God relationship. So we think our relationship with God is based on how much of the Bible I've read, how many times I've gone to church, how often I have prayed or not prayed, whether I've done good things or bad things, right? And that's, there's no problem with that, except that what happens is when we import that to our relationship with God and we fail, it causes us to, like Genesis 3, run and hide from God. It disturbs the relationship. It destroys our confidence. And then inside of us is this little kind of like, oh no, God's going to get me. We become beat down dog Christians with our tail between our legs, running and yipping away from God, wondering, is my house going to burn down? Is my car going to blow up? Am I going to get fired from my job? How is God going to punish me for this? Am I going to get sick? Am I going to get bleeding athlete's foot? How is God going to punish me? And we're just kind of waiting then for a blow from God, right? Here's why I'm confident. My confidence was built in my life by two gigantic, monumental events that happened to me. Number one was this. When I finally figured out why God loves me and accepts me, and number two, 22 years ago, when a five foot nine blonde said yes to me, confidence. Every one of you can have the first. None of you get the second. Mine. Right? Here's what I learned. God accepts me personally, Matt Heverly, because of Jesus' righteousness. It's the next verse if you know that he's righteous. Jesus, the righteous one, is my acceptance. And Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if the basis of my acceptance to God is Jesus, and he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, guess what my acceptance is? The same yesterday, today, and forever. I don't come into the equation. That is what you and I are supposed to understand. And when you get that, when that actually, that is the gospel. When that actually goes into your heart, it transforms you. There's all these things you don't care about anymore. 
You're set free from them. I don't care about how many hits I get on a video or how many people don't like me because of a video. I don't care about social media stuff. I don't have any of the accounts. I don't care to hit a million on Twitter. I don't care what car I drive. You can ask my wife about this. Like, I'll drive anything. I'm like, yeah, I'll drive that. No big deal. Like, I was working as an engineer, and I could have afforded a different car. Someone gave me. So this will tell you how nice of a car it is. Someone gave me a 1976 GMC Crummy, which is a perfect word for it, because that's what it was. Gigantic. Like, had its own zip code, pretty sure from Arkansas. Beat to snot rusted, baby blue, covered in like diesel and oil that you could not get off. And I drove that thing like I loved it. I'm pretty sure my wife's prayers were answered because I'd still be driving it because one day I was driving to work and the tranny blew on it. Trinity was like, God does love me. Thank you. And I had to drive that thing home in reverse, which is really fun. <laughs> Women and children were screaming like, ah, get off the road, right? I don't care. My identity is not wrapped up in the vehicle I drive. My identity is not wrapped up in the clothes that I wear. My identity is not wrapped up in whether somebody likes me or does not like me. Why? Because my confidence, my confidence is in one thing. My confidence relies on one thing, Jesus Christ and his righteousness. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's confidence. Do you have that confidence? You become bulletproof. You became a different kind of person. A person that just water off your back on so many things. You don't take yourself seriously. You don't take other people's opinion of you seriously. It's bulletproof. That is number one. If you do not get this foundation, you're standing on sinking sand. Eventually, you'll lose your confidence. So number one, our confidence built on Jesus, his righteousness. And then John now, as John always does, is gonna unpack how that looks practically. Look at these verses. Verse three, verse one, excuse me, chapter three. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Did you hear what John just said there? This is a 90-year-old man marveling, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. He's 90, marveling. Have you noticed the older you get, the less things that make you marvel, that kind of surprise you, that get you stoked? 
right? My seven-year-old Myron, he gets stoked with a new pair of foot jammies. He's like, yeah, foot jammies. Right? One of my kids, when they got new shoes, they would wear them to bed. They were so excited. I'm guessing at 90, you don't do that anymore. You're like, unless you forget, because that could happen. <laughs> John here is like, are you kidding me? Now, what is he so stoked about? What's he marveling at? That the world is going to hell in a handbasket, like some 90-year-olds. And it was. Rome was systematically searching out and killing Christians at this point. John had probably been boiled in oil because of his faith in Jesus, where they tried to kill him, but he didn't die. He could have marveled at that. He doesn't. Guess what he's marveling at? God's love. See what kind of love. In the Greek, it's from a different country. The love of God is from a different country. We would say today, his love is out of this world. Are you kidding me? What, what kind of love is this? Do you understand God's love? It's really hard to understand. Has anyone here read the book by Shel Silverstein called The Giving Tree? Raise your hand. Homework assignment. Look that book up and read it. It will take you all of 30 seconds. It's an unbelievable book. I read it now. I read to Myron a couple of years ago. I just started crying. Right? It's a kid's book, made me cry. Because it's a book about this tree that loves this boy. And when the boy is little, he comes and he plays in the tree and climbs the branches. They play hide and go seek. They just, they love each other. But then the boy grows up. And the boy comes back to the tree and the tree's like, oh boy, let's play. And the boy says, nah, I want to buy stuff. The tree says, well, pick all my apples and sell my apples so you can buy stuff and you'll be happy. The boy picks all the apples and takes them into town and sells them. He's gone for a long time. And he comes back years later, and the tree's all excited. Hey, boy, come play with me. And the boy says, I don't want to play. I want a house. So the tree says, well, cut off all my branches and build a house for yourself. And so the boy cuts off all the tree's branches and builds a house for himself. And gone for years and years and years. Comes back. I don't like the house anymore. I want to travel the world. So the tree says, well, cut down my trunk and build a boat and travel the world. And so the boy cuts down the trunk, and takes the tree, and all that's left is a stump. It's a very encouraging book. <laughs> There's a backstory to that book. Brendan Manning, who, if you know Christian circles, was a just out-of-control alcoholic from war and all that kind of stuff, gets touched by God in an amazing way, starts to write about the love of God. He and Shel Silverstein are friends. He asked Shel Silverstein one time, who's kind of agnostic, he goes, what do you think God's love is like? And Shel Silverstein said, I don't know, I don't have any clue. Well, Shel Silverstein sent a copy of The Giving Tree to Brendan Manning, and on it he said, this is what God's love is like. That we would come and just take and take and take, and guess what God does? Gives and gives and gives and gives, even to ungrateful kids like you and me. That's what God's love is like. I mean, brilliant. This is why John is just marveling. He's like, you, you don't understand the kind of love God has for you. Oh, that you could understand it. And so he tries to unpack it practically. Here's what it means. Number one, you have a new name. You know what your new name is? You're a child of God. The Greek is genitive. It means you belong to him. 
Myron is my son. It means in a way he belongs to me. You are one of God's belongings. Big whoop, Matt. What kind of belonging am I? Like there are some belongings that just don't matter, right? Yeah. There are common belongings in my house. Milk, flour. No one's putting their name on the flour. You know, dad's flour, don't touch. Right? I have to put it on other things, but not the flour. Right? Toilet paper is a common belonging. That's why sometimes you'll go in there and you'll get the one glued square and that's it. Like, you do not love me, people that are doing this to me. Are you kidding me? Right? So there's common belongings. There's ordinary belongings. Your socks. Does anyone know how many pairs of socks you have? If you do, seek professional help. <laughs> right? There's heirloom belongings that was passed down from grandfather to father to you or whatever it is, and they're very important to you. There's a different kind of belonging. Like there's a belonging to a group of people, right? You can belong to a group of people. But whenever you belong to a group of people, there are conditions on you belonging, are there not? And if you violate those conditions, sometimes unwritten, you'll be pushed out of that. I'll give you an example. You can take the most inclusive group in America and show that if you don't meet the conditions, you're out. So let's say I belong to the LGBTQ plus club in Josephine County. So I'm going to it and, and they're doing their things and, and all of a sudden I have an epiphany in my own heart that says, hey, I get sexual attraction, no doubt, and there's brokenness in that in all of us, but sex and the relationship of sex is held for a man and a woman for whole person bonding inside the confines of marriage, period. If I say that statement and I bring, begin to bring that into the LGBTQT+, Drew, who says that they're tolerant and we welcome diversity, if I begin to say that in that club, guess what will happen to me? I'll be canceled. I'll be kicked out, right? Because that, that diversity is not wanted here. So I don't care. You can give me the most tolerant, diversity-seeking group in the world, and I can say, if you violate some of their core tenets, they'll kick you out. So we take all these ideas of belonging, and then we bring them into our relationship with God, and we think, well, it must be the same there. Mm -mm. No. The Bible continually says that belonging to God is in a category that's out of this world. It's a different kind of inclusion. And so the, the Bible uses words like covenant. We don't have a similar word for it. It's pledged. It's, it's compelled. It's God's obligated. God has made promises to us that actually obligates God to you and me. It's a different kind of love. It's a different kind of belonging. It's different, okay? So we have this saying that's a question with pastors, with churches. Once saved, always saved? Is that true or false? Once saved, always saved. And so people go back and forth and they debate it and they go back and forth. I'll tell you where I'm at. If you didn't earn it, you can't lose it. If you didn't earn it, you can't lose it. The Bible says this, that when you are saved, 
truly saved. Something fundamentally in who you are as a human has changed. It's Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. You are given a different kind of heart. You're given a different kind of spirit. You're given different kinds of abilities. That's throughout the Bible. You become the very temple of the Holy Spirit, the New Testament puts it. You become different. You're not the same kind of person you were before. You are transformed. You're made different. So once saved, always saved? Absolutely. I put it like this. Once a pickle, never a cucumber again. Right? Can you unpickle a pickle? No, because there's fundamental chemical change in the cucumber to make it a pickle, and it can never be made back to a cucumber. Listen, believer in Jesus Christ, you have been pickled. (laughs) Praise God. And I'll give you verses for this. Listen to these. This is the words of Jesus. John 10, 28 and 29. I give them. Did you earn it? No. I give them eternal life, and they will hopefully... Possibly, they will never perish. And no one, who's included in no one? No one, including you. No one is no one. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all and... No one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Once a pickle, never a cucumber again. All right? Jude Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. He will present his people blameless with joy on that day. And finally, Philippians 1 verse 6. There's a ton more. I am sure of this. You can be sure of this. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you new heart, new spirit, salvation, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Listen, you are a child of God. You belong to him, and God takes care of his belongings. Read the Old Testament. Over and over, Israel does everything they possibly could to try to get God to just give up on them, and guess what God never does? He never gives up on the nation of Israel. He never gives up. He disciplines, no doubt. He scolds, no doubt. He brings Babylon, no doubt. But he never gives up on his people because they belong to him. You are a child of God if you've believed in Jesus Christ and he is the rock solidness of your confidence. You're pickled, praise God. You got a new, you got a new name. Number two, you got a new nature. So verse two is fascinating when you read it. Beloved, we are God's kids. We're God's children. Awesome. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, 
we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We have a new nature. So your best moment as a believer, according to verse two, is a glimpse of what you're becoming. Your absolute best is just a sneak preview of what you are becoming. You know why? Because kids always look like their parents, right? If you're a parent, you know that. I learned that early on. My oldest, Carissa, when she's 20 years old. When she was 18 months old, we had just finished building our house. She's inside on our, tri- on our little tricycle, and she's all dressed up. She's got a purse on, and she's riding around. And I said, sweetie, where are you going? She said, I'm going to town. I said, okay, and what are you going to do? She said, I'm going shopping. And then she put the brakes on. She goes, wait, I need one more thing. She reversed, went over to my wife's purse, pulled out my wife's credit card and said, now I'm going shopping and rode off. I knew right then there was no mistake at the hospital. That is my wife's daughter, 100%. Because kids, kids look like their parents. So you, as a believer, you ever have that moment where you know, wow, I'm being changed, right? You have joy when you shouldn't. You're stronger than you should be. You're brilliant. You're loving an enemy. You have grace for evil, terrible, terrible six-street drivers. Like, wow, I'm being transformed. I didn't get angry at them. I didn't say that they were number one in sign language. This is awesome. Transformed, right? Okay, here's what's being said. Here's what's being said. You have a new nature. And what's happening is we're becoming something, no doubt about it, but, but even our best moment here is infancy compared to what we're going to become, right? That's what John says. Hey, we know we're kids of God, no doubt, and what we are going to be, we don't know yet, but oh my goodness, it's going to be amazing that right now we're caterpillars waiting to fly. We're caterpillars waiting for that day when we're transformed. And children are awesome, and that's great, but oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, what we would become. Listen to how Paul puts it in Romans 8, 23. We groan inwardly. You ever groan at this life? Maybe stuff you've done? Shameful stuff? We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons. That word son there is huios. It means the adult, mature, belonging to a family person that has access to everything of the fathers. Bank accounts, cars, houses, power, everything. We're going to be adopted one day as huioses. The redemption of our bodies, these bodies that sometimes take us in directions we wish they didn't. For in this hope, we were saved. One day, one day we'll be changed. One day. And we're getting glimpses of it right now, right? You smash your thumb with your hammer. And amazingly, you don't have to go look for it 50 yards away. 
No one else knew about it. You just said, ow, that hurt. And you go on with your work. What happened? Oh, it's fruit. It's fruit. The little glimpses we get, it's just infancy of what we are becoming. Well, Matt, I'm not seeing that happen in my life. Well, here's what you have to do. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, as we keep our eyes fixed on him, we are transformed, it's the word metamorphosized, like a caterpillar to a butterfly, we are transformed into the same image from glory to glory by the power of his spirit. We keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, saying, change me, make me, grow me up. It's 1 Corinthians 3.6. You plant and you water and God gives an increase. Sometimes there's just planting times and watering times before there's fruit. If you start a garden, guess what? You're not getting tomatoes yet. But you know, in August you will. In August there's gonna be salsa. In August, oh, praise God, that's what's happening. You trust the process. You keep planting and you keep watering. You keep coming together, you keep fellowshipping, you trust the process, and fruit comes. That's what happens. It happens for all of us. It's the little things, the infancy, but we're going to become something that's unbelievable because you have a new nature. Then lastly, we can have hope because we have a new ambition. So verse 3 says this, everyone who thus hopes, you can back up a little bit, I guess, you probably should. So back up to, we know when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he's pure. This was taught to me as a kid. It was taught like this, that if you believe Jesus could come back at any time, he could appear at any moment and you have that idea in your head, that's gonna purify you And here's how it will purify you. You won't do things you shouldn't do because you're worried Jesus might come back while you're doing that thing. And so you purify yourself. Has anyone ever heard it taught that way? Well, maybe I was a mutant. That's okay. I don't think that's right. Here's why. Because I think it makes a fundamental mistake about sin in the heart of the believer. You got a new heart. You got a new nature. You have a new ambition. So that idea makes sin look like this. Oh, I wish I could. Oh, I wish I could, but Jesus might come back so I won't. Oh, I wish I could on Saturday night get all fixed up and go to the Wonder Blur. Oh, that would be awesome. Go get drunk and wasted. Spend all my money. Get in a fight with somebody. That I would win. Just a note. Right? Wake up, hungover, covered in puke, missing my wallet with a new tattoo I can't read. That would be so cool. But I can't because Jesus could come back in the middle of it. That's ridiculous, isn't it? No, the heart of a believer says, I'm not engaging in that. That's stupid. That's not what this text is saying at all. Here's what it's saying. It's saying, here's your hope, believer. You're being moved, you're being changed, you're in infancy right now. But good news, good news, one day you'll be like your hero Jesus. That's what it's saying. So hope, it'd be like this. I had a childhood hero growing up. 
Probably most people did. So I loved growing up Joe Montana. He was like my hero. Loved the Niners, you know, the whole thing. Just Joe was it. Now, if you told me, Matt, when I'm 16 years old, Matt, you can go to this summer camp. This summer camp is going to be brutal. You will have to work your tail off from the time you get up in the morning till you go to sleep. You won't get a single day off. You're going to sweat. You're going to toil. It won't be fun. It'll be as difficult as you've ever done. But at the end, when you graduate, you're going to throw the ball like Joe Montana. Are you in? Guess what I would say? I'm in. Let's do this, right? Because I want to be like Joe. Now, I don't know who your hero is, but let's say there was a summer camp and you could go there and the same thing, brutal and hard, but at the end of it, you'll be able to knit like Martha Stewart. Brilliant. Or dunk the ball like Michael Jordan. Or cook like my wife. One for me. (laughs) Got to make up for stuff. You'd be like, oh, I'm in. I'm going to do it. Listen, this life is summer camp. That's what it is. We're in infancy. We're learning. But when we see him, we'll be transformed. And the best that we have right now, it's just a glimmer. It's a glimmer of what's going to be displayed in you and me for all of eternity, okay? That there's working in us through the good, through the bad, through the hard, an exceeding weight of glory in every single believer. And he is faithful to complete that in you and me on the day of Jesus Christ. That's our confidence. That's what gives me hope right there. That gives me hope, right? And my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. This is the good news, right? And there's a whisper in you and me And this whisper, and I'll finish with this, this whisper, and it's in all of us, it's a whisper to go back to Moses. This is what I mean. When you fail, when you do something that you shouldn't do, whatever it is, it's not look to Jesus, it's, hey, you need more laws. You need more rules in your life. You need behavioral modification. You need this book, you need that book, right? It's a whisper, and it's the enemy saying, Jesus isn't enough, go back to Moses, which is the whisper of 1 John. Jesus isn't enough. He's good, but you need something else. No way. That is wrong. That's a lie. And what it leads to is futility and shame and regret. And it drives you away from Jesus, not closer to him. Because our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, period. It's why we take communion every Sunday. It's for you and me to say, we're keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. That's why we do it. So if you have it, grab it, open it up. Let's take the elements together, keeping our eyes fixed on him. So Jesus today, We hold you, but in reality, you've held on to us, and no one can snatch us out of your hand. 
that we can be sure of this, that you began a good work in us and you will be faithful to complete it on that glorious day. I pray that every believer here would have their confidence firmly founded on your blood and your righteousness. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That our acceptance, that this out of this world love that's been given to us, it is unchanging because its basis is you. I pray that we would eat that confidence and it would protect our heart from the lies of the enemy that wants to shame us and condemn us and drive us from your presence. Let's eat together. And we hold the cup. The cup that says you don't have to make more sacrifices. The cup that says, get rid of those promises. The sacrifice has been made. All the promises of God are yes and amen in you. That we don't go back to Moses. We look forward to you. We confess our sins, knowing that you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that you are our propitiation. You remove all animosity. That we come boldly before your throne and obtain help in our time of need because it is the throne of grace. Let us drink of that forgiveness. Let's drink of that manner of love. Let's drink together. Amen. So we conclude every service with prayer up here. Jesus says, if any is weary and heavy laden, come unto me and I'll give you rest. Maybe you have some kind of a care or some kind of an issue that's just been, it's been wearing you out this week. Let's come up here. Let us pray for you. Get freedom from that. Find his rest. We do baptisms because the great commission is go into all the world and preach the gospel that you have righteousness because of Jesus Christ and faith in him. We preach that going to all the world and preach the gospel, making disciples, teaching them everything that I've commanded and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So every Sunday, baptism. Prayer, baptism. Or enjoy that. It's pretty good. Would you stand for one final song?